Morning, church. Um, I wanted to give you uh, a few updates um, of what's been going on uh, with uh, us as a youth ministry and even just personally because uh, obviously we haven't been able to be together. Uh, but one of the things we've been doing every Friday, by the grace of God, he's opened up some doors for our church and through our youth to be able to minister to our community. And so this is something that's been part of uh, a prayer that we've been having. It's something that we've desired to do. We just needed the resources to do it, and God opened doors for that. And so every week we partner with this organization called World Vision, also with our alderman office, and we are able to provide food and essential supplies to 100 families every week. And so every week we have 100 different families from our community who come in, and it's, uh, we wear gloves, we wear masks, they're socially distant, they drive through, so we don't have any contact physically with them. But I'll tell you what, and I got pretty emotional this past Friday. There was one lady in particular who from the moment she drove in to the moment she drove out could not stop thanking the people that were serving her to the point where she was literally in tears saying, you have no idea how much this means to me. And our students almost didn't know how to reply because it's like, well, we didn't like make the food. We're just giving it to you. Uh, but God has called us to be the hands and feet. And so I want to encourage you, uh, wherever you are, to continue to serve, continue to donate, continue to give, continue to be part of the solution. Anybody can point out how difficult the times are, but God's people are the ones that are called to rise up in difficult times and be the hands and feet of Jesus. So we're so excited for that. And then personal update, uh, because people keep asking, where's your daughter? When are we going to see your daughter? Does she even exist? Yes, she exists. Uh, quarantine is not a problem for her. She's been quarantined since birth. That is my baby. She is eight months this week. So little Josie, Jocelyn, um, she's doing wonderful by the grace of God. This quarantine's really nice because she hasn't gotten sick yet. I pray to God that nothing happens and, and that she stays healthy. You know, for the most part, she's been phenomenal. She's uh, strong. She's growing really fast. And we thank you so much for your prayers. We are reminded of your prayers every time we look at our daughter. And so we're so grateful for that and everything you continue to do. And speaking of my family, I'm going to steal a moment of your time to say to my beloved wife, Cicely, happy anniversary, my love. Today is six years of marriage. Amen. Um, you know, there's so many people try to scare newlyweds and tell them, oh, you know, there's going to be a honeymoon stage and that'll fade after a few years. and You just got to stick it out. I thank God that I love you just as much today as I love you the first day I said yes and that I love you even more. And my wife, thank you for supporting me, for encouraging me, for pushing me to be a better man in every aspect and for being such a wonderful wife and mother. I love you from the bottom of my heart and I hope this scores mega points for me in the anniversary department. One of the things that my wife and I, we love to do is we love to watch shows together. So right now, again, a lot of people struggle during the time of quarantine. My wife, the homebody, is loving it. She gets me and my daughter, and she just gets to hang out with us. And so we'll watch shows, and we watch all different types of shows and movies. And uh, I, I've noticed something that I don't think is unique to me. I think a lot of us do this. Whenever we watch a show or a movie, we tend to identify with the hero. We, we tend to feel like, yeah, that's me, right? Like when I'm watching Braveheart, I'm William Wallace. I, I'm the one who's yelling freedom. I'm not the extra in the background who's probably the first one to die. I'm not the evil king. When I'm watching, you know, a Marvel movie, I'm Captain America, obviously, right? Because I got, I got flags on my shirt. I'm Captain America. I'm not Red Skull. Uh, I'm Michael Jordan in the 90s Bulls. I'm not the Detroit Pistons. I'm always the good guy. Whenever I watch something, 
I identify as the good guy. Almost never do we go, man, I'm really like that villain. (laughs) Or wow, that bad guy, so like me. We almost never identify with the villain. And again, with movies, with shows, I don't think that's a big deal. But where it can become complicated sometimes is when we read our Bible. Because when we read our Bible, we almost always identify with the good guy. You know, we're almost always David slaying Goliath, right? We're uh, Joshua marching, leading the armies of God around the walls of Jericho. We are the hero. Whenever we read, we tend to read through that lens. But what if we're not the hero? What if as we read this story, we start to misinterpret what God is trying to say to us? And it happens. As a matter of fact, it happened to King David. If you have your Bibles in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1 through 7, there's this story that picks up, and let me just give you some background info so you understand what's going on. Uh, David, who, you know, the same David from David and Goliath, this wonderful king, probably the best king that Israel had had. Um, great guy, except he did have his flaws. And on one occasion, when he was supposed to be leading his armies in war, he found himself in his palace wandering around. And as he wandered, he noticed a beautiful woman bathing. And his flesh got the best of him, and he brought that woman over to his palace, and he slept with her and ended up getting her pregnant. This woman was actually married to one of his soldiers who was on the battlefield. So in order to try to cover up uh, his sin, he calls that soldier Uriah back home and tries to trick him into going to bed with his wife so that he thinks the baby is his. And Uriah, being such a wonderful soldier and such an honorable man, says, how how could I go to my bed when all our fellow soldiers are fighting for God on the battlefield? And he refused to go to his house. And so David goes to his next plan, and he notifies the commander of the army, and he says, when Uriah comes back, I want you to put him on the front lines where the fight is the thickest, and when it gets crazy, I want you to pull our men back and leave Uriah to die. And so not only does he sleep with a married woman, impregnate her, but then he ends up killing her husband. And the Bible is clear that this doesn't please God. But a year passes before God confronts David. And this is where we pick up the story in chapter 12, verse 1. It says, so the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb, and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four uh, lambs to the poor man for the one he stole for having no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you're that man. David is hearing this story and he's unable to identify with who he really represents in the story. See, in David's eyes, he's, he's standing for righteousness. He's looking at this and he's saying, this isn't right. He's, he's pointing fingers and he's saying justice must be served. And all the while, he's the one that was creating injustice. I wonder if maybe it was because David was king. He, he was so used to his title that no one would dare accuse a king. 
Or, or maybe it was because of his history, right? This, this was the man of God, a, God uh, a guy after God's own heart who, who defeated the Philistine, who led the armies of God. Or maybe he just wasn't remorseful. Maybe, man, this happened so long ago, I don't even remember. It's, it's just, it's not a big deal anymore. Whatever it was, I think at the core of a lot of this, or I think one of the major issues with this was that he was being self-righteous. Watchman Nee, an incredible author, a very complicated read. If you want to read some great deep theology, listen or read Watchman Nee. He says, according to the Bible, the works of the flesh are of two kinds, though both are of the flesh, the unrighteous and the self-righteous. The unrighteous and the self-righteous. David's initial sin was an unrighteous act of the flesh, but it was compounded by his self-righteous act of the flesh. This idea that he couldn't possibly be the villain in the story. See, the definition of self-righteous is having or characterized by a certainty, especially an unfounded one, that one is totally correct or morally superior. Uh, I'll be honest with you, there has been uh, times throughout this season where I've had to take uh, a much-needed social media break because I feel like there are a lot of self-righteous people pointing fingers. Whatever side you land on, there are a lot of people, even with the idea of the, of the whole cancel culture, they'll dig in through 20 years of your uh, news feeds and, and find some sort of dirt and, and pull it out and say, let's cancel that person, let's shut it down. Look what they did, as if they've never sinned in their life. And we're seeing Christians do this, Christians who are pointing fingers, Christians who are lashing out, again, as if there's complete righteousness in their life and they have never sinned. See, everyone wants to be Nathan, prophetically speaking against those who they see as doing wrong. But almost no one wants to be David, being confronted with the realities of your sin. There are three areas that I think we can easily fall into the temptation of self-righteousness. That if we're not careful, we can end up doing things that are self-righteous. And, and the tricky thing about self-righteousness is by the very nature of what it is, you don't acknowledge it. And, and part of why you don't acknowledge it is even when people bring it up, you're not willing to accept it. So it's a very difficult sin to deal with. See, the, the sinner on the streets who knows they're wicked, who knows they're struggling, they can't live in that comfortability for long. But a self-righteous person doesn't think there's anything wrong with them. And because they're unwilling to acknowledge they have a disease, they're unwilling to accept a cure. But instead of looking at David as, as an example of self-righteousness, I want to look at another person in the Bible who we almost will never identify with. Because many of us have identified with David. We, we look up to David. David is a, a Christ-like figure in the Old Testament. But I think almost none of us ever identify with the man named Judas in the Bible. When we read the Gospels, we always almost identify with disciples like Peter and John, right? These mighty men who got to see the transfiguration of Jesus, who, who were able to be a part of that inner circle. But what if we're more like Judas? What if that's the disciple that we maybe most identify with? I want to point out just, just three areas, and if you want to take notes, this might help you. One of the first things that I notice that we can easily struggle with self-righteousness is self-righteous in our titles, in, in, in the position that you have. Whether it's pastor, manager, parent, Christian, whatever title you identify with, American, 
Republican, Democrat, whatever title that we end up identifying with, very often we can slide into being self-righteous with that title. If you read the Bible and the Gospel of John, there's a story where Mary comes into the room and she has this expensive jar of perfume. And she breaks this jar and pours that perfume over Jesus' feet. And it's this wonderful act of sacrifice and worship and love towards her Lord. This is an expensive bottle of perfume. And she thought, the best thing I could do with it is anoint my Lord's feet. It's a beautiful illustration. And, And everyone notices it except for one. And John 12, verse 4 through 6 says, But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, That perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold, the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor, he was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Judas was the treasure. He had a title. He had a role. He he had a job that, that could have easily puffed him up. I wonder if part of it, obviously he was a thief, but I wonder if part of it he was offended that that Mary didn't go through him first. Hey, listen, I'm the treasurer. Anything that has to do with money, it's got to go through me first. You need my approval. This is my position. See, the self-righteous believe that their title justifies their actions. That that I can do this because I'm in charge. I I remember there's times I've worked in, in a number of different jobs before I was in ministry, and I've had good bosses and I've had bad bosses. And there are times where, where you get one of those not-so-great bosses who, who are threatening or, or lord something over you, and, and they're very intimidating in nature and try to bully you. And I remember thinking, who are you? Like, I don't need this little job. This is a little minimum wage job. I, and again, I, pre-pastoral, I wasn't all that great yet. There were moments where I'm looking at the person going, is this job really worth it? Because I feel like punching you in the face might be worth it. I, I love you. But minimum wage, I'll punch you in the face for minimum wage, <laughs> right? It's just this idea, who, who are we to think we're better than anybody? To, to lord anything over anyone. And yet our titles will often puff us up. Judas, he had to have some business acumen to be given this position as a treasurer. I'm sure he had some sort of skill set that enabled him to do that. And whatever position you're in, I'm sure you have some sort of skill set that gives you that title. But do not forget that all who are in authority are placed there by God. And that not everyone in authority is righteous. Not everyone in authority is a good person. Now that's not criticizing any of our uh, you know, politicians or any of our government leaders or any of our church leaders. I'm not saying, Brother Gary, our treasurer is stealing. I love him. He's a man of God. You're great. I don't believe that we should check just in case though. I love him. I'm not saying all that, but what I am saying is be careful because self-righteousness can wind up in titles, especially the higher up you go in power. Look at how many great men and women of God have had major fallings because of moral failures, because of financial theft, because of positions that they thought I'm untouchable. It created a sense of self-righteousness. I I can justify doing this because I am the man of God or or I am the person in charge or, or this is my house. Listen, just because you're mom and dad doesn't mean you can do that to your children. Some of our teenagers, the Bible is clear. We love to quote that, you know, honor your mother and your father. But the Bible also says don't exasperate your children. 
And there are some times in some of our children that are having really difficult times during this quarantine, not because they can't be with their friends, but because of how you are acting towards them. Because they can sense your frustration with them, your anger with them, your lack of patience towards them. Don't let your title as mom and dad to make you think you're any less of a sinner than your children. Luke chapter 14, verse 11 says, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Don't be puffed up because you've been given a certain position or a certain authority. I remember how excited I was when I was given the title of pastor, but more than excited, I was terrified because it's not something that I wanted. It's something that I knew God had for me, but I feared and I trembled and I still do because of the weight of what that title means. It doesn't mean I get to lord over teenagers and leaders. It means I serve at the behest of the Lord and all the people that he's put onto me. We can be self-righteous in our titles, but we can also be self-righteous in our traditions, in the things that we've done, in the accomplishments that we've made, right? David could have easily said, I'm the man who killed Goliath. Who are you to bring any accusations towards me? I remember uh, once I had a, a young lady when, when I was uh, a few years into pastoring, I had a young lady who wanted me to dedicate her baby. And I hesitated and I was honest. I said, listen, a, a baby dedication is about your commitment and your promise before God and his people that you're gonna raise up this child in the ways of the Lord. You're not living for God. You're not even with the father of the child. You have no intention to raise this child in God's ways. Honestly, the only reason you want to dedicate this baby is because you think somehow this makes sure they go to heaven. And that's not theologically correct. And so listen, if you're willing to, you know, make this thing, you have to understand a baby dedication is more about mom and dad than the baby. It's more about their commitment than the child. And so if you're not willing to do that, then we're just doing ceremonies. And a lot of Christians have settled for ceremonies. They think because one day you lifted up your hand and you said yes to a prayer that that justifies everything else you do, that, that because you were baptized in this tank behind me, that that justifies something you do. Listen, six years ago on this stage, I said I do. I had a ceremony, but that did not make a marriage. I had to work towards that. John chapter 13, verse 8 through 11 says, no, Peter protested, you shall never wash my feet. In this situation, in this uh, scenario, Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. This was an act that was reserved for the lowest servant of the household. But Jesus was given an illustration that he is the one who cleanses us, that he is the one that makes us clean, and that he humbled himself to be able to do that. And when he's doing that, Peter's like, no, 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 there's no way that I can let you wash my feet. But Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands and my head as well, Lord, not just my feet. Jesus replied, a person who has bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him and that this was what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. He washed all their feet, but not all of them were clean. What does that say? That says that not everyone who's baptized is clean. Not everyone who says yes, it means it. Not everyone who shows up in church is a child of God. That your ceremony does not mean much, right? That the self-righteous will believe that their acts of service, their ceremonial rituals, their religious accomplishments somehow validate them. That they're holier because, well, you know, I've been in church longer than you have. 
Yeah. And at this point, as the Bible says, you should be eating meat and you're still on solid food. Uh, That's not an indictment or that's not a, a compliment of how great you are. It's an indictment of how far you fall into that. We think because, well, my, my uncle was a pastor. So what? What does that make you? <laughs> well, you know, I tithe more. Uh, I, I read the King James Version, you know, because if, if it was good enough for Peter and Paul, it's, it's good enough for me. Only, I love how the, the real Christian's like, yeah, King James wasn't written then. I only, I only watch Christian movies. I only listen to K-Love, you poor unfortunate soul. <laughs> listen. Your acts do not justify your sins, right? Because we're not saved by our acts. We we don't justify our sins with works. You can do all the religious things you want, get baptized, become a member, serve in ministries, go on mission trips, help the needy. You can do all those things and still be completely self-righteous and away from the Lord. You can even have Jesus Christ himself wash your feet and still be unclean. Listen, Matthew chapter 7, verse 22 through 23 says, On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name, performed many miracles in your name. Let me pause right there. I think doing one miracle is awesome. I kill for that. They're saying we did many miracles. We, we prophesied. We, we did all these accomplishments that in the church world, we would say, wow, what a mighty Christian that one is. But listen, Jesus says, but I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's law. We can become very self-righteous in what we've accomplished for the Lord instead of our relationship with the Lord. Hey, listen, it's great that you did all those things. But if your heart is far from the Lord, it doesn't matter. Listen, it, it'd be great if I provided for my family and I gave them a wonderful life and I financially took care of everything they needed. But if I was never there to have a relationship with them, my wife and daughter wouldn't care. They would rather we be poor and together than rich and separated. And in the same way, God is saying, listen, I get that you're doing all these things and on the outside, That seems wonderful, but I died on the cross so that you and I can have a relationship. And when we have that relationship, then through that, you will accomplish all the things that I have planned for you, but not the other way around. The self-righteous, we could struggle with titles and we could struggle with uh, moving in situations such as this that uh, thinking our traditions will justify us. But sometimes the self-righteous, we're self-righteous in our transgressions. What I mean by that is, When you're self-righteous, you don't think you're a sinner. You don't identify in that way. The self-righteous, when they mess up, don't feel it's that big a deal. Well, you know, it was just one time or it's just a little sin. Especially those of you who are seasoned Christians, you've probably gotten to a point where you've overcome those major sins, right? You're no longer a drug addict. You're no longer a prostitute but you're still struggling with those small things that you're just brushing over. You're still sinning before God, but in this case, you're going, compared to what I used to do, this is fine. And I'm not saying you need to beat yourself up, but you can't puff yourself up either. Matthew 27, verse three through five, when Judas who betrayed him saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. 
I have sinned, he said, for I betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. I love that the Pharisees and the chief priests said, what is that to us? Because isn't that right? He sinned, not against the chief priest. He sinned against God. But who does he go to with an apology? Not the Lord, the chief priest. Oftentimes the self-righteous in our transgressions, when we sin, we look to make things right for us, but not for the one we offended. Yeah, I feel bad that I got caught. I feel bad that I hurt people and I don't want people to look at me bad, so I'm sorry. I have no remorse for the person I offended. I have no remorse for how I I honored the Lord. I just don't like the fact that people think I'm a bad guy now. And so I wanna fix my image. I I wanna move on so people can get over it. I I just wanna be able to get past this. Think about going back to David. It was almost a year, at least more than a year, transgressions occurred since he killed Uriah and impregnated Bathsheba. And it wasn't until Nathan confronted him with them sins that he says, I have sinned. In other words, I wonder if he would have ever said it had he never been confronted. The self-righteous will never go to the Lord on their own accord. They wait till they get caught. And be sure that your sins will find you out. And one of the things I've tried to teach our teenagers over the years is expose sin before sin exposes you. Bring it to the light. Make sure that you're the one. There is grace and mercy for those who bring that to the Lord, who humble themselves and say, God, I have sinned against heaven and you. Would you take me back as your son? And the father is willing to meet you halfway and say, yes. But listen, I'm, I'm learning this now as, I, as my daughter's growing up and those of you who are parents, you understand. When your child messes up and they come to you and they say, mommy, papi, I'm sorry. I, I, I spilled the juice, I'm, I'm sorry. There's like, hey, sweetie, don't worry. Let's go clean it up together. It's okay, you're fine. But when you walk by and there's three-day-old food stains on the carpet and you're going, what happened? Oh yeah, I spilled something three days ago. Why didn't you say anything? Meh. That's when you know the punishment comes down, right? That's when the anger wells up. The self-righteous think it's not that big a deal. The self-righteous, when confronted with their own sin, will experience remorse but not repentance. A lot of us feel sorry. We feel bad, but we don't feel repentive. Repentive is not just I feel bad, but I never want to do that again. I've, I've sinned. I've committed something wrong. And not only do I want to make up for that, but I want to ensure that that doesn't happen again. They feel bad for what they did, but they don't feel the need to make it right with who they did it to. I feel bad that I made you mad, God, but I don't feel the need to make it up to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 through 11 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what earnestness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. To be willing to say, I've messed up. I'm not perfect, but I want to do better. I think we're a very forgiving culture when we bring our issues to the light. But I think we have an issue with people when we find out what they've been doing. 
and the self-righteous feels like you're nobody for me to bring this to light. Even to the point where we know God knows and we still are unwilling to admit it to him. Worship team, if you can help me out. Today just so happens to be the day that pastor asked us to do communion. And I was mentioning to Pastor Evan earlier, as I was preparing this message, I didn't realize that we were going to have communion. But I love how God tends to work things together. Because as I was closing, I was looking at the Last Supper, the the first time Jesus had communion and established this sacrament that we partake of every month. If we look at this Last Supper, I think you'll notice a powerful tool against self-righteousness. Matthew 26, verse 20 through 25, says, when it was evening, Jesus sat down at the table with the 12. While they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, am I the one, Lord? He replied, one, uh, one of you who has just eaten from this bowl with me will betray me. For the Son of Man must die, as the scriptures declared long ago. But how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. Judas, the one who would betray him, also asked, Rabbi, am I the one? And Jesus told them, you have said it. This portion of scripture has always stuck out to me. I love that the disciples each asked, am I the one? I think self-awareness often prevents self-righteousness. I think each disciple understood that they were just as capable as Judas of betraying the Lord. As a matter of fact, all of them eventually did betray the Lord, not in the same way that Judas did, but they abandoned him, they ran away from him. Even mighty Peter, one of the leaders of the disciples, denied him three times. The difference was, each one of them understood, and because they were self-aware, they were able to later repent and make it right. Judas, because of his self-righteousness, never took that option and instead decided to take his own life. The self-aware Christian recognizes that they are capable of the worst, and so we need to lean on God for his best. For me, I remember a good friend of mine once told me one of his greatest fears was cheating on his wife. And I thought to myself, is he trying to tell me something? Is he admitting that he's being tempted? Does he, does he need counsel? Like, what, why is he saying that? And I was a single young man at the time. I didn't really get it. But today, celebrating six years, I understand that far more. I don't think it's that he was tempted to cheat on his wife. I just think he understood that he was capable of it. That he was just a man like any other man. And that if he wasn't self-aware, if he wasn't cautious how he interacted with other people, the kinds of things that he watched, the way that he uh, guarded his eyes and his heart, that if he wasn't careful, he would lose his wife because he was capable of that sin. Listen to me, church. I don't trust myself in the slightest because I know that there is nothing good in me outside of God. That, that's not to say I'm a bad person. That's not to say I'm an unrighteous person, but nobody is righteous, not even one, right? Our righteousness comes from God, but, but I understand that I'm not good. It's why as a youth pastor for the past 11 years, I have guarded myself around being alone with children. I've never once had a thought about being with a child 
but I'm a person. I don't know what my sinful nature is capable of. So I don't even want to allow the opportunity for sin to creep its head in. See, this isn't about, you know, treating yourself like dirt. It's just admitting that without Christ, we are. Outside of God, there is nothing good in us. There is nothing righteous about ourselves. We are made right with God in one way and one way only. Romans chapter 3, verse 22 through 24. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. This precious bread and juice that we're going to be partaking of represents his life that was broken on the cross and his blood that was spilled so that you and I can be made righteous with God. Not self-righteous, but Christ-righteous. That whatever righteousness is in me is because of the grace of God in my life. And so I think part of what I like to do and, and I think the Bible teaches us when it comes to communion is that before we partake and in a moment we're going to, so if you can start to get that ready, I wanna ask you, would you take a moment to self-examine, to, to look at your life and to see are there any hints that God's been trying to point out? You know, I, I, Jesus mentioned that it would have been better for Judas to have never been born. But, but I want you to understand, I don't believe that God set up Judas to fail. Because if you look at every scripture that we pointed out, Jesus, without even saying his name, keeps giving hints. One of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. He's given Judas an out every time. He's given Judas an opportunity to say, Judas, I know you're stealing but I still put you in charge of treasury. Judas, I, I know you're thinking of betraying me, so, so I'm gonna bring it up again and again and again. It's almost like a, like a mom or dad saying, hey, did, did somebody take a cookie? No, are you sure nobody did it? No, it wasn't me. Christ gave Judas ample opportunity to reject self-righteousness and humble himself and confess. But he refused. And eventually he took his own life. I don't want to have that story. I don't want to live the life that I've lived trying to please God the way I please, only for it to end that way. 